Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. For the last several months, Niger has experienced a surge in attacks against civilians by violent extremists. This includes a spate of attacks in March in which hundreds of civilians have been killed. In one particularly egregious act of violence, men on motorbikes conducted coordinated assaults on three villages, killing over 130 civilians. This region of West Africa, known as the Sahel, has experienced profound and growing security challenges in recent years. But according to my guest today, Ornella Moderan, what distinguishes this new upsurge in violence in Niger is that civilians are being targeted and on the basis of their ethnicity. Ornella Moderan is the Sahel Program Head for the Institute for Security Studies, and I caught up with her recently from Niamey, Niger. She was in Niamey, the capital, for a significant moment in the history of that country. On April 2nd, for the first time since Niger's independence in 1960, there was a peaceful transfer of power from one civilian leader to the next. Now, that almost did not happen because just a few days earlier, there was an attempted coup, which was repelled. We kick off discussing what is driving increasing violence in the southwest of Niger, where these recent attacks have taken place, and then we turn to a conversation about recent political events in the country. Towards the end of the interview, Ornella Moran makes some important points about the efficacy of a military strategy to combat violent extremism in the Sahel that is being undertaken by a coalition of countries in the region and backed by France. This coalition is called the G5 Sahel, and Ornella Moran argues for a more comprehensive approach to insecurity in the region or at least one that does not rely solely on military force. So I was glad to have Ornella Moran back on the podcast uh, earlier last year. Uh, she was part of a panel discussion that I hosted on the podcast about the links between climate and security in the region. And I'll post a link to that episode in the show notes. And I also must say just how pleased I was uh, with the audio quality of this episode, which was recorded from Niamey, Niger. Uh, at one point, you'll hear the power is cut where she is speaking from, but the Zoom gods uh, looked favorably upon us that day, and our conversation was uninterrupted. And one final request, if you could, if you are a regular listener to the show, if you listen to the show week in, week out, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to the show. I love reading about how this show impacts your life and how you derive value from it. Thank you. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Ornella Moderan of the Institute for Security Studies. 
Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The second half of March has been a particularly difficult moment for for the western part of Niger. So I think you're referring to the attacks that occurred in particular in the regions of Tilaberi, bordering Mali and Burkina Faso, as well as in the region of Tawa, bordering Mali. So um, what happened essentially is, is two main attacks. One occurred on the 16th of March. This would seemingly have been an attack perpetrated by violent extremist groups, probably the ISGS group, which is the Islamic State in the greater Sahara, although they didn't claim it, um, specifically targeting uh, individuals, well, a a group of people uh, coming back from a market in the in, a, in, in the location called Banibangu. So what was um, new with this type of approach is that n- not only it's the interception of uh, an entire group of people, so official figures for that specific attack are 66 casualties, civilians. Um, but in that particular case, there seems to have been an ethnic or community targeting, which is something that's very new in, in Niger. It's not something that uh, the Niger context uh, has seen a lot of before, unlike other uh, neighboring countries. Is the idea that it used to be that a lot of these attacks were simply banditry, but now you're seeing this ethnic component of these kinds of mass atrocity events? It's a little bit more complex than that. So if you look at the history, at the recent history of the conflict in Western Niger, so in the regions of Tilaberi and Sawa, um, you can kind of clearly see several waves of insecurity. So it started uh, mainly with the targeting of local authorities, village elders, chef de canton, and other local figureheads of state authority that were being targeted uh, by violent extremist groups. So this was kind of the the first wave of targeting. And then after that, um, probably in response to to the the Niger state's reaction, which was to deploy more more defense and security personnel in these parts uh, of the country, a second wave of attacks specifically targeted those defense and security forces. So you could see major attacks like the one that happened in in, in Ates or in Chinegodar uh, at the end of 2019 and beginning of, of 2020, which killed hundreds of uh, Nigerian soldiers uh, specifically. But around those times, so 
civilians were, were still not being targeted as a main target. Um, criminality and banditry occurred, but it didn't seem to have uh, necessarily or always a terrorist component, and it definitely didn't reach the kind of extent that we started seeing since this year. Now, the third wave, which is what we are discussing now, is something that started at the beginning of this year. So on the 3rd of January this year, uh, a mass attack, first of its kind, happened in the western part of Niger, targeting two villages reported to have uh, challenged the authority of, um, of terror groups. And those two attacks uh, killed a total of at least 100 civilians. This was on the 3rd of January. Then on the 16th of March happened the, the incident which I, I just mentioned. And shortly after that, on the 21st of March, happened a third incident in the, in, in the district of Tilia, um, where an entire village was attacked and at least 137, again, civilians this time uh, were killed. So this shows a new trend in the, conf in, in the conflict dynamics in the Western part of Niger, which is about direct targeting of entire populations, of entire uh, civilians. The point that you're mentioning about um, ethnic uh, dynamics is an interesting one because it seems that whoever is perpetrating these attacks is trying to play that card. Mm. This is not something that has had um, very strong grounds in the Niger, especially in the Western Niger context until now. But there seems to be a, a sort of attempt by the violent extremist groups perpetrating these attacks to create a, um, a narrative around ethnic identity, around uh, inter-community conflict, or even to start a, a uh, vicious circle, a retaliation circle, almost by pitching communities against each other. Mm -hmm. It serves the strategic interests of this Islamic State offshoot, the Islamic State in the greater Sahara, to foment these ethnic divisions in some way? Absolutely, in the sense that, well, you know, I mean, this is as as old as the, the world itself, divide to rule. So it's not clear what, what the strategic intent at the end of the day exactly is, but it could be about um, um, subcontracting violence to various communities mm -hmm. so that they take up this dynamic on their own. It could be about uh, clearing up this uh, that part of of the country, especially along the border with Mali, as uh, as an area of operation or as a base or or as a um, um, back position, it could be about uh, challenging uh, specific authorities either either at a national or at a local level. So many things could be playing in and it's it's still not clear exactly what the end game is which i guess is uh one of the most concerning factors because it's of course very difficult to establish a response strategy to a problem which uh is still difficult to grasp 
So these attacks uh, that have increased in frequency in late March come at a time of political significance in Niger. The country uh, was to have its first peaceful transition of power since 1960, uh, but that was potentially briefly interrupted with a failed coup attempt uh, that also happened in late March. Can you just sort of describe and, and set up the political transition that has since occurred in Niger? I think you, you said most of it, actually. So um, since the independence of Niger in 1960, the country has known four military coups. And this, this year was the first time that uh, the relay was being passed between one democratically elected civilian uh, head of state, president, to another. Um, this, uh, the inauguration of uh, then-president-elect Bazoum, who is now the president, uh, occurred on the 2nd of April, so just a, just a few days ago. And as you mentioned, it occurred in a context of, of course, high tension uh, in the country and high emotion uh, related to the acceleration of attacks on civilians during the second half of March. But it also occurred in a context where uh, there was an uh, attempted coup um, in the very last days during, um, sorry, in the very last days before inauguration. So um, very little information has filtered on what exactly happened. But one thing uh, that was made public is uh, the fact that a small group of uh, military officers would have attempted um, uh, by night 3 a.m. to to take over the power. Uh, they did not manage, and um, a round of arrests followed in the next following days. And this did not impeach the the peaceful political transition. However, um, I think it's important to also mention that uh, President Bazoum's inauguration also took place in a context of political tension within the political class itself. So it's important to distinguish uh, the the attempt by military actors, by some military actors on one hand, and the uh, ongoing contentious between political actors and political parties. So um, some very high figure political leaders are still uh, imprisoned uh, to this day. And this is in a context where political dialogue across party lines in Niger has been in a stalemate at least since 2016. So this will definitely be one of the uh, challenges of the new power in terms of building a collective dynamic that brings uh, various parties together. I mean, is there any direct connection between the political stalemate that you described and the worsening security situation in parts of the country? Nothing really suggests that. And I guess this is one of the elements that can be difficult to understand from outside of the Sahel, but nothing really suggests any such connection. So on the one hand, you have a very tense political um, 
seen domestically. And then you have the worsening of security dynamics, which is probably more linked to uh, regional dynamics, to the broader Sahel context, uh, and perhaps to some level, um, uh, and, and well, probably to some level, I should say, the evolution of um, of violent extremist group strategies themselves. But it's, I mean, I really couldn't make a direct link between mm. uh, the two elements. Um, and so you're in Niamey right now, uh, in this moment of the first peaceful transition of power in the country's history since post-independence. Like, what's the, the mood on the street or among the people that you're, you're speaking with? It's a lot of business as usual, but it's also a lot of um, wondering what's, what's going to come next. The new president was elected uh, on an agenda of continuity. I think it's important for listeners to know that uh, President Mohamed Bazoum, before being elected, uh, was a member of the, the previous government. He has run the Ministry of Security for several years uh, and, and has also occupied other Official functions in the past, so this is definitely not a newcomer in the political game or in uh, in the um, the governance of of the country. However, on inauguration day, the the speech that he delivered suggested some level of uh, of change. Actually, so uh, he presented an agenda, which is an agenda focused uh, on a few very well um, articulated priorities, which include education, which include security, and which include governance. While this is not new in the sense that it was part of his campaign discourse, um, the way in which it was presented uh, made some observers wonder whether this would really be about continuity or, well, what type of governance exactly does he have in mind and what are the, the changes he he wants to to bring to to the country what would you expect in terms of uh, the the government response to growing insecurity in parts of of Niger to be the same or different from how the government has previously responded to insecurity in parts of the country so the government of Niger has generally been uh, quite reactive to these developments. So um, right now, the core of the of the insecurity is happening in the western part, part of the country. But but a few years ago, it was in the eastern part of uh, Niger, in the region of Difa, which is uh, quite heavily affected by the Boko Haram crisis. So... Um, President Bazoum comes with, uh, as I mentioned, an experience of these issues. Uh, he has been uh, leading the country's policy on security for, for quite some time. Oh, Mark? Yes. Yes, Hello. yes. So, yeah. Um, okay, I just had a power cut. So, Uh-oh. Um, I, I wondered if, if, if you could still hear me. I could right still now. hear you. Okay, so let's... Let's okay. keep going. I, I have faith in the power grid okay. of Niemi. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, indeed, 
he has a security background at high levels of de decision making, including as a, as a minister. Um, and he, he has also shown quite some pragmatism in addressing these issues. So um, during, a, during a recent interview, for instance, he mentioned that in the past he had already expressed willingness to initiate dialogue with, uh, with all kinds of um, violent actors, potentially included, including um, ter terrorist groups, if they wanted to negotiate. Um, so this is something that I think should be taken seriously as the issue of whether or not to negotiate with terror groups is increasingly coming back in the region. Now, one of the things I didn't mention earlier while um, painting the general security context is uh, that Niger is also part of the G5 Sahel. So the G5 Sahel is this group of five countries, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad, that have come together since 2014 to try and establish a common framework for, well, initially for development and then extended, uh, especially since 2017, to security as well with the establishment of a joint force. Uh, recently, Chad has sent a contingent of its joint force uh, to the western part of Niger, where this insecurity is happening, um, in order to support the stabilization of this zone, so of the western part of Niger, but also the northern part of mm. Burkina Faso, just across the border. The reason why this is important, I think, is not only because it speaks to Niger's openness to uh, regional cooperation and collaboration on security issues, but also because this deployment has uh, raised additional questions in terms of really what the price of counterterrorism for civilians is. Mm. Uh, the Chadian battalion that was deployed to the Western part of Niger has been reported to commit atrocities, including uh, raping community women, including an 11-year-old child, during the first two weeks of their deployment. This has created major turmoil uh, in the country and in the region. It was documented and substantiated by the National Human Rights Commission of Niger, which prompted uh, very strong reactions, both from Chad authorities and from, uh, fr from the G5 Sahel Joint Force itself. Um, so while, of course, this is um, an encouraging development that such strong reactions of condemnation and commitment to uh, to have the perpetrators of these acts uh, be held accountable are good um, good signals. What's very concerning, I think, is that the counter-terrorist agenda and counter-terrorist operations are. Um, are really doing quite some harm yeah. uh, to civilians in their way. So this is a recent example. Other examples outside of Niger could be, for instance, the the, the controversies over the French strike on Bunti uh, village in 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 Mali, which also reportedly killed um, at least nineteen <laughs> sorry at least nineteen civilians gathered at a wedding, according to. So this raises yeah. the bigger question of really what's the what's the cost of mm -hmm. this counterterrorism fight? 
for as long as I've been interviewing people and covering the situation in the Sahel, it seems that one of the drivers of conflict and instability has persistently been the overreaction of counterterrorism forces by the government against civilian populations. And that um, causes this sort of reaction against the, the government and causes this cycle of violence to continue. Exactly, exactly. So this is um, an element or an indication, I think, of the need to rethink the way uh, states uh, fight terrorism in this region. So far, we have seen a lot of very militarized responses that um, either purposefully or mistakenly Uh, fail the human rights of local communities and, well, more generally, just the protection of civilians. This is extremely counterproductive in the sense that the type of, I mean, of course, aside from uh, the ethical and legal uh, problems that, that, that this poses, it's also just very much counterproductive mm. from a very strategic and operational perspective because the the fight that counter-terrorist counter forces are putting is one that cannot be won without the support, without the collaboration uh, of local populations. How, so the question really is, how do you expect to get the support of, of civilian communities that you also vi victimize? And this is something that, uh, that has repeatedly come mm up in conversations with various stakeholders he, he, here in Yemen during our, um, I mean, over the last couple of weeks, this notion that well, we really don't know on, on which side uh, the, the terrorists are. Maybe mm. they are on both sides because our terror, our fear comes from both sides. So, you know, earlier you described that it's really regional dynamics that are driving insecurity and, and these terrorist attacks throughout the Sahel. Uh, and the response has been regional as well through the G5 Sahel, but it's been overly militarized. So what would a perhaps a demilitarized or more comprehensive or perhaps even like enlightened approach to security look like in the region? Looking at the way counterterrorism is performed in the Sahel, these seem like a bit of an afterthought. Um, so it's very difficult sometimes to see how the the official lip service actually translates into re realities on the ground. And this requires things like, of course, training, but it also requires uh, political leadership. It requires a um, a much more collaborative and uh, community-sensitive. Uh, I'm definitely not the only person saying this, and there are, there are entire organizations and coalitions of organizations that have been pushing for an agenda that, that would be people-centered and that would go beyond the military part to also address the underlying governance issues. So these governance issues include things like, well, um, the lack of access to basic social services and basic needs for rural communities, things like water, things like health, things like, 
like education. This also links to bigger national challenges in terms of governance, such as corruption and transparency in uh, in and transparency in public administration. These are key elements that are really part of the underlying factors uh, for conflicts and violence, which need to be addressed just as much as a military, uh, an immediate military response is needed. And then last but not least, I think prevention. So counterterrorism is very reactive when really a lot of these structural responses to governance deficiencies could help address root causes and have a much more effective uh, prevention approach. You know, the the lack of this comprehensive approach uh, to uh, security in the region and the uh, uh, terrorist attacks that are ongoing must be causing some sort of profound humanitarian crisis. What does that look like right now? Absolutely. I mean, it looks like... Uh, uh, forced displacement, uh, thousands of households fleeing their their villages, either because they have been attacked before or beca- because uh, they are likely or feel likely to be attacked in the future. This, of course, creates a lot of pressure uh, on, on host communities as well. Um, it creates um, a high level of humanitarian needs. So this, I think, is an important development also, especially in the context where the humanitarian response is um, is both underfunded in Niger as well as in all other Sahel countries. But in the context of Western Niger, it's also very much... Um, um, I mean, it's also... Uh, what's the word? Okay, it's also very much hampered by access issues. Humanitarian access is extremely d- difficult, and it's one of the key elements of discussion, conversation, negotiation between the humanitarian community on one side and the Niger government on on the the other. Arnella, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. And I uh, thank you. And, and I'm glad that I was able to reach you today in Yemi. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a pleasure. All right. Big thank you to Ornella. That was very helpful. And I'll certainly be following you know, broader issues surrounding the G5 Sahel and security in this region. If you are particularly focused on this region, I recommend you check out other recent episodes, including conversations about the situation in Nigeria, in Burkina Faso, and elsewhere. And today's episode is supported in part through a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to showcase African voices on peace and security issues. To view other episodes in this series, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com and a disclaimer that the opinions and views expressed in this episode belong exclusively to those of us who expressed them. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.